Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of Psalms, looking at Psalm 84. My sermon this morning is entitled, Better is One Day. I believe we would do well to have two perspectives as we consider Psalm 84. One perspective we'll see in Psalm 84, a song written by a psalmist who is on a literal pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem in order to worship God and to celebrate one of the great festivals of the Jewish calendar, most likely the Feast of Tabernacles. A second perspective considers the psalm as it is being used by God's people throughout the years as they desired to go to Jerusalem. In either case, Psalm 84 describes and develops the desire God's people have or certainly ought to have for the presence of God. The psalmist and those who employ the psalm yearn for Jerusalem. They pine for the temple. They ache for its courts and its altars. But ultimately, what they desire is God, to be in his presence. Psalm 84 indicates that the presence of God is a glorious blessing that should be desired, pursued, prayed for and preferred over everything else. The presence of God understood properly acknowledges that God is present with his created order and in his created order. We use the word omnipresent to describe God being present everywhere. And often the phrase manifest presence is the term used to the Describe God's relational and experiential presence as he interacts with humanity. J. Ryan Lister in the book, The Presence of God, its place in the storyline of Scripture and the story of our lives, writes, Yahweh is the present God. And the biblical canon is a beautiful and creative story of how he fulfills his promise to be in the midst of his people. Scripture's narrative suggests that the past, present, and future realities of redemption are inextricably tied to God's drawing near to his people. Lister goes on and declares that the presence of God is both the central goal in God's redemptive mission and the agent by which the Lord accomplishes his redemptive mission. The book of Revelation declares and confirms that the culmination of redemption is God's people forever abiding in his presence. Revelation 21, verse 3 and 4, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But the presence of God isn't just the end in view. It's also the means to that end. The only way for humanity to enjoy the presence of God was for God to be present with us. 
by becoming a man that he might live among us so that he could live a perfect life and die an atoning death for us. The means of salvation was God with us and our ongoing hope of salvation is God with us. Ephesians 2, verse four through seven says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So as we dive into this song of a literal trip to the temple in Jerusalem, let us with so many other pilgrims, let us rejoice and exult in its figurative but very real pursuit of the presence of God. Point number one a passion for God's presence. In verses one through four, the psalmist describes his passion and desire to experience the manifest presence of God. Few verses in scripture so eloquently reveal a passionate longing, or as one commentator wrote, a rapturous yearning for the presence of God. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The psalmist is consumed by the desire to be in the dwelling place of the Lord, the Lord of angel armies. And the temple to him is both lovely looking and greatly loved because God is there. There is physical beauty and there are spiritual benefits in the place where God dwells. In fact, the psalmist's whole being, his heart and his flesh, cry out to be in the courts of the Lord on Mount Zion. One commentary noted that the word translated as long as in my soul longs for the courts of the Lord, that was the same word they would use to describe the voracious craving of a lion for its prey. That is the intensity of the desire described in Psalm 84 for the presence of the Lord. Now there are hints in these opening verses that suggest there is something or there has been something that has prevented the psalmist from getting to Jerusalem. There's been something that has prevented him from being in God's dwelling, and whether that was a personal hardship or a societal or geographic obstacle, there has been something that has prolonged his absence. It reads that way. Now, the psalmist's desire to be in the presence of the Lord with God's people in public worship made me think of so many in our congregation who, despite many obstacles, despite many reasons to not be at church, have prioritized coming on the Lord's Day, coming to worship with their church family. And though Psalm 84 is speaking about more than church attendance, it's not speaking about less than that. 
Most recently, I remember our dear sister, Faye Browning, coming to church, oxygen tank in tow, being helped by Robert or one of her children so that she could be here. Such a tangible demonstration of a love and a desire to worship with God's people. I remember looking down a few weeks ago to see this frail sister raising her arm in worship to God, and it was such an encouragement and continues to be an encouragement to me. I visited with Faye the day before she went to be with the Lord. One of the last things she said to me was, tell the church I love them. Surely, brothers and sisters, as we consider Faye, as we consider others who overcome mobility issues and physical health issues and mental health issues, or perhaps just getting to church with young children, you need to know I sit in my office before service and I look out those windows and you can't see in because I've got the lights off, but I watch God's people coming to his house, and one of the great encouragements I have every Sunday are parents bringing their young children, knowing that most Sundays it's not easy, and yet they love and desire to be here. We can apply Psalm 84 to our lives by asking God to give us the desires and the longings and the yearnings represented in this song as they pertain to joining in worship with God's people. Let's pray that God would do that in us. The psalmist goes on to consider common birds that nest in the temple complex and understand them to be greatly privileged because their homes are in God's courts. The temple represents for those birds a place of safety, a place of security, a place of peace. So too the psalmist knows that those who are in the presence of God and those who are praising God are truly blessed, truly happy, truly flourishing. These passionate longings for God's sanctuary, for God's presence, encourages the psalmist as he journeys to Jerusalem. Point number two, a pilgrimage for God's presence. In his pilgrimage to encounter the presence of God, the psalmist experiences God's blessing. Psalm 84 very likely became a song that pilgrims to Jerusalem would sing as they approached the city for one of the religious festivals or perhaps just for simply performing the religious duties. In verses five through seven, we read that faithful pilgrims would find God's strength on the journey and would experience that blessedness even as they were heading towards Jerusalem. This journey to the courts of the Lord, to the presence of God was on their minds. It was in their desires. It influenced their decisions. I love that phrase, the highways to Zion were in their hearts. And this trip took the psalmist through 
the Valley of Baca, which is an unknown location. And it can be translated two ways. It could be translated as the Valley of Balsam Trees or the Valley of Tears. Now, since balsam trees grow primarily in dry and arid conditions, whichever translation we go with, it indicates on a real journey, but also on a figurative journey, that it will be filled with difficulties. It will not be easy. But God would bless the journey. God would bless the journey such that the difficulties did not ultimately become hindrances. God would transform the dryness into delight. God would change the tears into triumph. Each step towards Jerusalem, each step towards the presence of God would bring new strength until one appears before God in Zion. Recalling this psalm and singing it on the journey to Jerusalem would be an encouragement for pilgrims as they made their way to Jerusalem. As pilgrims, they could expect the blessings of God to help them even on their way. And this reminds us this morning that we too are pilgrims. And for us, there is also help for the way. You see, the pinnacle of our experience of the presence of God will come at the end of the ages when we enter into our eternal rest with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Psalm 84 can help us on our pilgrimage, giving us motivation to commit ourselves to the life of a pilgrim. Our eternal abiding in the presence of God is an encouragement for us to not quit the journey, to not forsake the company of pilgrims we journey with. Because what are we looking for? We're looking for what Hebrews 11.10 calls that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Because as Hebrews 13.14 reminds us, we have here no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And that's motivation for us. And it's an important motivation because we know that some quit the journey. Some quit the journey and do not persevere on the pilgrimage. The Apostle John talks about them saying, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 1 John 2.19. The Apostle Paul also saw this danger. And speaking of the pilgrimage as a journey by sea, he warned Timothy, this charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. I sometimes wonder, on Sundays, having sat in my office and watching God's people come in, having stood up here and seeing God's people worshiping, worshiping together, I wonder how many who came will turn back. I wonder how many of you who came today 
will quit the journey this week or this year. Experience tells us there will be many here today who renounce their commitment as pilgrims, who renounce their journeying to the dwelling place of God, to eternal life in the presence of God. So take heed, pilgrims. Be warned, sojourners. Be vigilant, exiles. Do not turn back. Do not fall away. Rather, be encouraged while you live to keep longing to reach that destination, the destination of the presence of God. Know that when you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. And so Psalm 84 encourages us on our pilgrimage. As we desire to be with the Lord, he will help us as we face threats and challenges that might dissuade or divert us. In the next verses, I believe the psalmist has arrived at the temple and prays in God's presence for God's presence. Point number three, a prayer for God's presence. The psalmist, now at the sanctuary of God in Jerusalem, prays for the presence of God to be with the king. As we have seen in previous psalms, the request that God hear my prayer and give ear and behold and look are petitions to God that he respond in saving ways. And the psalmist intercedes on behalf of the king, the king who is a shield for his people because he provides for them and he cares for them and he gives them peace and security. The psalmist is, acting, is asking God to shield their shield to show the favor of his divine presence to the one anointed king over Israel. This prayer for the power of God's presence to work for the good of someone the psalmist cares about gives us an opportunity to apply the text this morning. These are prayers that we ought to make, prayers for people we know and care about, that they would truly sense the saving presence of God. These are good prayers to pray. We can pray that our brothers and sisters in Christ would be aware of God's presence with them. I often pray for those grieving the death of a loved one or perhaps going through a very difficult trial, that they would sense in tangible ways the comforting presence of God in the midst of what they're going through. We know and we affirm that God is with them. But I pray that they will sense his presence in tangible and powerful ways. Paul would prayerfully make declarations just like that. In 2 Timothy 4.22, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. 2 Thessalonians 3.16, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and every way. The Lord be with you all. I'm sure Paul knew that God was with the believers that he wrote to. And yet he wanted them to have an awareness of God's presence. And so he prayed. 
We can also pray much more evangelistic prayers for unbelievers, asking that God would show himself to them in saving ways, that God would make himself known to those who don't know him. J. Ryan Lister, whom I quoted earlier, writes, contemporary society, whether it knows it or not, needs to hear about God's presence. We should want unbelievers to know that God is real and that he is present in our lives and that they should experience that same thing. If you're here today and you're an unbeliever, we want you to know that God is present to save you today. Now, we haven't, as a church, always done a good job of communicating about God's presence. In our current cultural context, many well-intentioned Christians err when they share about God's presence in our world. Some believers err by trying to testify to a present God by making him just like us, just like the rest of creation. We portray a God who lacks exhaustive knowledge and is bereft of complete sovereignty and really somewhat dependent on humanity to be who he is. Unbeliever, do not make that mistake. Yes, God is present with us, but he is not like us in our human essence. He is divine. In our culture, some believers make a mistake in the other direction, suggesting that God isn't present with us in meaningful ways because he is too different and too distant and that we can't know him in any significant way. Unbeliever, do not fall off that side of the road either. God is knowable and a real relationship with him is possible. You see, the story of God is a story of a God who is both transcendent and imminent, who is way beyond us and right beside us. He is transcendent as the mighty creator of the universe, infinitely beyond us in wisdom and power. But he is the creator who created us that we might have fellowship with him, that we might love him and be loved by him. He is the ultimate and divine being who is infinitely holy and separate from us. That distance is experienced tangibly by every human because every human has sinned against God. Every human has rejected him and disobeyed him. And the result of that is his wrath and judgment against us. This makes us feel the distance and the difference between us and God. And yet, as we celebrated this morning at the uh, communion table, he provided a remedy for our sin, a remedy for our guilt, a remedy for our judgment. God the Father sent his divine son, God the Son, to come and literally be with us. God the Son became a man that he might identify with lost humanity and through his atoning death on the cross save humanity. And there has never been a coming near so extravagant and so glorious 
as when God took on flesh and died for his people. Jesus then, in the midst of this glorious act of his nearness to us in death, he then demonstrated his divine difference from us. Because brothers and sisters, unbelievers, he conquered death in his resurrection. Unbeliever, it is through faith in this God who is both wholly unlike us and yet became one of us. It is through faith in him and through trusting in his work on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead that we are saved and that we experience his presence now and forever. He became one of us to be one with us. And those who believe are blessed with the gift of his presence. If you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, if you're watching online and you're an unbeliever, our prayer is that God would make his presence known to you and that you would believe. And if you have questions about that, we would love to discuss them with you. Please ask, speak to someone. Brothers and sisters, let's add to our discipline of prayer in general the specific prayer that God's presence would be known, that God's presence would be known by unbelievers and experienced in real ways by those who believe. This would be a great practical outworking of Psalm 84. Psalm 84 ends with the psalmist declaring his preference for the presence of God. Point number four, a preference for God's presence. The psalmist reveals in the last few verses his preference for the presence of God, his reason for that preference, and the results of that preference. First, the psalmist declares his preference. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. The psalmist declares the presence of God is superior to any other thing we might desire. If the psalmist could be in God's presence for just 24 hours, he would exchange that for three years anywhere else. In fact, those thousand years mean an indefinite amount of time. In fact, God's presence was so good, was so glorious, that even just standing at the door of the temple just being near that place was better than anything the world can offer. The psalmist prefers the presence of God. But why? Why this preference? What is it about the presence of God that makes it preferable to everything else? Well, the psalmist tells us the presence of God is where his blessings rest, where his benefits are realized, where we can know him and be known by him. His presence is the place of grace and glory. The psalmist says, the Lord bestows favor and honor. His presence is the place of grace and glory. 
And what is the result of having this preference and living one's life with this preference? The psalmist says and finishes off his psalm, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Now this idea of blessedness, of being blessed, of being blessed in the Bible is a really a beautifully complex idea. It includes at least three concepts which help us broaden our view of blessedness, to see it in all its grandeur. The first concept is that of shalom. Shalom in the Bible means peace and wholeness that results in well-being. When God reigns over his people and with his people in joy and righteousness, and God's people relate to him and to others rightly, this is shalom, both individually and corporately. The second concept that informs us about being blessed is associated with a Greek word, makarios. Now, this concept is closely related and overlaps significantly with shalom, and it informs us how to orient ourselves to really live the good life, to have genuine well-being individually and in society. It is to flourish as a human being. It's the place of flourishing. The third and final concept that helps us understand what it is to be blessed is the idea of teleos. The idea of teleos also overlaps with shalom. Shalom and makarios describe human flourishing from an overview perspective, a sense of wholeness, a sense of well-being. This last idea describes a state of experiencing flourishing through completeness. It emphasizes a single-hearted devotion to God that encompasses holiness and righteousness and godliness. True completeness is not only about external purity, but also about integrity, about singleness of heart, about dedication. And pursuing this type of completeness leads to that human flourishing, that well-being, that wholeness. This is what the presence of God, mediated through Christ, brings to God's people. It brings a wholeness. It brings a life of flourishing, a life of holy happiness, where we are in right relationship with God and with men. And this is what the psalmist is passionate about in Psalm 84. This is what he pursues. This is what he prays for. This is what he prefers. And this is what every believer in Christ is promised. Every believer in Christ is promised the presence of God the Father through God the Son by God the Spirit. And so let's finish this morning by talking about the Holy Spirit. In the Old Covenant, God was present among his people. And yet the presence of God came to his people ultimately and preeminently in Christ. The work of redemption was accomplished in Jesus by the Spirit, and it resulted in the giving of the Spirit to indwell believers. Speaking to believers, Paul attests to this great truth, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Theologian Sinclair Ferguson, in his work on the Holy Spirit, writes, the indwelling of the Spirit is portrayed in the New Testament as personal, 
in nature. The Spirit himself dwells in believers, viewed as physical bodily entities. The relationship is more intimate than that of mere divine influence. He goes on to say, the analogy we are offered is that the mutual indwelling of Christ and the believer is shaped according to the pattern pattern of Trinitarian relationships. Just as there is a mutual indwelling of Father and Son revealed by the Spirit, so by the indwelling of the same Spirit, Christ and the believer are united. Theologian Jim Hamilton, in his aptly named book, God's Indwelling Presence, writes of the change that Christ worked in regards to the presence of God through the Spirit when he compares the Old and New Covenants. He writes, prior to the glorification of Jesus, God was with his people. After the glorification of Jesus, God dwells in his people. And this is confirmed by the words of Jesus from John 14, 17. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says to his disciples, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Brothers and sisters, let us worship our God who through Christ made it possible for his people to perpetually experience the presence of God, not by personally residing in a temple in Jerusalem, but rather by being indwelt by the Spirit of God, by having the presence of God dwell in us. And because of that, we, like the psalmist, ought to be passionate about the presence of God. We ought to pray that others would experience his presence, both believers and unbelievers. And we ought to prefer his presence to anything else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 84. Father God, we are moved. We are moved by its eloquent and powerful proclamation of the glories of the presence of the Lord. We would pray, Father God, as those who are disciples of Christ, that we would have a passion and a desire and longings comparable to those of the psalmist. Father God, because we have been given your spirit, that your presence might not just be with us, but in us. Help us to not forget that. Help us to not ignore it. Help us to rejoice in it and to pursue your presence all of our lives. We pray, Father God, for unbelievers, that they would experience your presence and know that you are real and that they would believe and put their faith and trust in Christ. We ask all of this in his name, amen.